Hello and uh, good morning, Rock City Church. Uh, my name is Stephen and I am the pastor of uh, Regeneration Church Monash and uh, very uh, honoured to be uh, invited to bring God's word to you uh, this this morning. And I just want to thank uh, uh, Pastor Pastor Ferdinand, Pastor Ferdy, for uh, inviting me um, to speak to you this morning. And uh, just a bit about myself, um, I'm married to, to Callie and we have uh, our son uh, Austin. He's just under uh, two two years old, and um, we uh, we with the team we planted a church, a regeneration church, in the year twenty seventeen. So we are into our fourth year now, and uh, part of the city to city network, same as Ferdy, and that's how uh, I met Ferdy. So um, I'm originally from uh, Malaysia, and I've lived here in uh, Melbourne since the year two thousand and seven. Um, uh, Ferdy tells me that um, you are going through the, the book of John at the moment and so I've prepared a, a sermon uh, from John. I'm guessing you would have looked at uh, the woman uh, at the well last week. Um, so let me just pray for us before we get into God's word. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word to hear you speak uh, even uh, online. And Father, I just want to pray for uh, Rock City Church, that you would bless this church, you would continue to strengthen them, um, draw them closer to each other and closer to you. And I pray even now, as they gather around your word, that you would speak clearly and you would open every heart to receive what the Spirit has to say in the name of Christ. Amen. Do miracles happen? Uh, Western educated people, and by that I include uh, Asians, Africans, uh, Latin Americans as well, uh, are typically uh, skeptical um, of miracles. Uh, this is true, I think, both uh, amongst Christians and non-Christians today. Uh, and, and I think that uh, they are skeptical in, in different ways. I think the, the Western non-Christian would typically say, you know, there's no such thing as miracles, and there never have been. They will look at the miracle claims of the Bible and say, uh, you know, like, like Jesus' resurrection and, and the healings that we see, and this is just a bunch of made-up stuff to, to make this Jesus uh, look, look uh, like he is a divine figure. A uh, typical skeptical comment um, about miracles in the Bible is that Back then, in ancient times, um, people were just more gullible. Uh, they weren't as smart as we are. They didn't have the, the same the, the science. And so um, they, they thought that miracles were happening when actually there was a scientific explanation. But I think that this is actually not the case. Um, if people were so gullible, why didn't a bunch of other um, people... Um, just copy the same strategy and and fake a, a resurrection uh, and 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 gain a large following. Um, I think it's fair to say that miracles, um, like being raised from the dead, people coming back from the dead, is not normal today. But neither has it been normal back then, or really in any point of human history. And what we have today in John's gospel is a miracle story, a healing miracle. And one of many miracles that we see Jesus perform 
throughout John's Gospel and also all the other Gospels. Now, as we explore this particular miracle, I want us to think about uh, miracles more broadly today. And so there are three things I want us to learn from this story today. And the first is um, the wrong attitude towards miracles. The second is the right attitude towards miracles. And thirdly, the greatest miracle. So let's begin with the wrong attitude uh, towards miracles. If you uh, have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, please keep them open to um, John chapter 4. Um, Ferdy says that you would normally use the ESV. So let me, uh, I'll give you a moment to just get there. But let me just read a, a couple of verses here um, from verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, as you've seen last week, Jesus just spent two days in Samaria. He's, he's been doing this great work of evangelism. Um, after his encounter with the Samaritan uh, woman at the well. And we are told that many believed in Jesus because of the word that he uh, preached and that he was indeed the savior of the world. Now, this is a pretty important phrase, right? Because he's not just the savior of Israel, which is what people expected the Messiah to be, but he's also the savior of the world. The fact that he is the savior of the enemy of the Jews, which are the Samaritans, shows that he must have come to save not just the Jews, but everyone. Now, after this, uh, he returns to Galilee. And Jesus says that a prophet does not have honor in his own uh, hometown. Now, it's a bit ironic then that the Galileans do welcome him, right? And, and the writer John does like to use irony a lot in the gospel. Um, now, you will eventually see as you progress through the, the gospel that this welcome that he gets is actually uh, quite shallow. Now, the question we should also ask is why then did they welcome him? John writes that they welcome him because of what they had seen him do in Jerusalem at the feast. Now, what did he do um, in Jerusalem at the feast? Now, it wasn't actually a miraculous sign. And we are reminded in verse uh, 46 that the, the miracle, which is turning water into wine, happened in Cana, in, in, in Galilee. Now, if you remember back in John 2, what did Jesus do? He actually trashes the temple in uh, Jerusalem because the merchants had turned his father's house, a house of prayer, into a house of trade. Now remember that Jerusalem is the big city. And Galilee is like, it was the countryside. Uh, so there, there's actually a cultural divide here. Now imagine, um, let's say here, you, you've got your typical outer suburban uh, tradie, uh, somewhere like Frankston. And imagine that this, you know, typical outer suburban trade doesn't like how he's being treated by, um, you know, some stuck-up 
professionals in a suit in, in, in Melbourne CBD. Uh, the Galileans were probably unhappy at how they were treated by either the temple establishment or the temple traders um, when they had travelled into Jerusalem for the feast, uh, for, for Passover. Um, in other words, unlike the Samaritans, they are actually not welcoming Jesus as the saviour of the world, but rather as a working class hero sticking it to the man, right? Remember, Jesus himself is a tradie. Okay, let's look now at verse um, 46 and 47. It says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So there was an official who heard that Jesus had come and arrived at Cana in Galilee. Now Capernaum, where, he's, where he lives, is also uh, in Galilee and is not far from Cana. Now, of course, Cana is where Jesus had performed his first miraculous sign. And so he's famous there now. Uh, and, and John is careful to point out that this man is an official. Some translations say that he is a royal official. Now, this was someone uh, who was serving under the Roman governor at the time, which is Herod Antipas. And some uh, commentators would say he's like a Galilean aristocrat. Um, some commentators say it's possible that he is a Gentile, but we're not 100% sure. Uh, but why is his identity significant? Because regardless of whether he was a Gentile or not, he would not have been seen by the, the, the most of the Galileans as one of them. Now, if he's a Gentile, he's obviously not one of them, right? But if he was a Jew, he would be seen as someone like a traitor for gaining wealth by working for the enemy, the Roman governor. Yet out of all the people in Galilee, he was the one who came to Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, because he had a need, right? He was desperate. His son was ill and so ill that he was at the point of death. Verse 48 says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, when you first read this, you might wonder, why is Jesus so harsh towards this official? Now, our English translations are a bit limited, but maybe you might have a footnote uh, for this verse. And, um, and, when, and when Jesus says here, unless you see signs and wonders, the you here is a plural you in the Greek, the original language. So Jesus is saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Who is the you all? Right? The official. He's talking to just one man. Now, Jesus is actually here criticizing all the Galileans. He's basically saying, 
all you Galileans, you all have the wrong attitude towards signs and wonders. You have the wrong attitude to miracles. Your faith is so weak that unless you see these miracles, you will not believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Savior. Now, what about today? I think that Christians today also often have the wrong attitude towards miracles. Um, there's two extremes that I see in the church. The first thing I see is that there is sometimes an obsession with signs and wonders. Before I became a pastor, I was once attending a church that was a Pentecostal church. And when I first joined this church, I was um, uh, very uh, uh, inspired by their um, zeal for evangelism and church planting. And, uh, you know, I actually came from a, I come from a Baptist background, but, but I was drawn um, by uh, their zeal, because I'd never joined a Pentecostal church before, and I was draw drawn by their zeal for evangelism. And I learned a lot about the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. But over time, um, over the years, the focus in this church began to change. They became obsessed with signs and wonders. They started following, if you know, uh, Bill Johnson and Bethel Church. And literally every Sunday you go to church, they will, every single sermon, they will be preaching about signs and wonders. But sadly for them, signs and wonders uh, did not actually happen in the church. Now, I was becoming increasingly frustrated um, uh, with, with things there. And uh, the last straw was actually one Easter Sunday. I remember I brought my, my non-Christian friends to, to, to church and they, they actually came, which is great. And I was hoping that, you know, to hear a great evangelistic sermon on the gospel and, and on the resurrection of Christ. But to my utter dismay, for the very first time in my life, I heard an Easter sermon that did not talk about the gospel and worse, did not even mention the resurrection. And I was utterly shocked. Um, and until today, yeah, this is the only time in my life I've ever heard an Easter sermon that doesn't talk about the resurrection. Um, and, and sadly, the, the, the pursuit of signs and wonders led this church to um, engage in, in a number of practices which are actually comes from um, occult or new age practices. Um, it was actually a very painful experience for uh, my wife and I as we uh, ended up leaving the church. Now, there is a second wrong attitude. Um, towards miracles. And that is a cynical skepticism. There are lots of Christians, as I said, particularly in the West, who typically say that there are lots of miracles that we see in the Bible and they happen during Jesus' time and the time of the apostles, but they don't happen anymore. Or at least they don't tend to happen anymore. And when you ask them why, they would say, oh, it's because we've now got the completed canon. We've got all 66 books um, of the Bible, so we don't really need miracles for people to come to know God anymore. I think one of the great dangers we face um, as a church in the West is that we are captured by the Enlightenment. Now, ever since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, academic circles uh, have been filled with a naturalistic uh, and anti-supernaturalistic bias 
pervading every discipline from sociology to anthropology to psychology and actually even biblical studies. Now, if you're interested, I recommend that you look up this uh, particular biblical scholar. His name is Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, who has written a massive two-volume work on miracles called Miracles. Yeah, I actually have it here. So you can see this is the book uh, by Craig Keener, Miracles, really good book. Um, and um, and you don't, if you don't really like reading, that's, that's fine. You can actually uh, just find him on YouTube and you can hear him give lectures on this topic. Now, Keener's big goal in his research is to show that the prevailing skeptical view towards miracles in the West is intellectually indefensible. Now, why, why does he say that? He has three arguments. His first argument is a historical one. So he says, the miracle reports that we see in in the Gospels and in Acts, such as our passage today in John 4, these are based on eyewitness testimony. They're not legendary stories. They're not later additions, right? These eyewitness testimonies, they are analogous. They are similar to what happens today when we do receive reports of a miracle healing. Now, Kina's second argument is a philosophical one, that we should not dismiss the possibility of miracles a priori, that is, ruling them out from the start. And Kina, in his work, takes on David Hume, one of the fathers of the Enlightenment and the most uh, significant proponent of anti-supernaturalism. Now, Keener skillfully shows how Hume's argument is actually circular. So Hume, he argues, based on his own experience, that miracles do not happen. And yet at the same time, he completely dismisses credible eyewitness accounts of miracles, the, that is, other people's experiences, based on his own assumption that miracles do not happen. And Hume then argues for the uniformity of human experience against miracles, a uniformity that he can only establish if he first rejects a priori all eyewitness claims to miracles. He assumes the very thing that he's trying to prove. Now, Kina's final argument is one from experience. Kina has traveled all around the world and he has recorded many modern eyewitness accounts of miracles all around uh, the world. He, he focuses more on the majority world, so Asia, um, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And so many scholars today, Western scholars, dismiss completely the eyewitnesses from the majority world. Asia, Africa, Latin America, Caribbean, because apparently they are primitive, they are uneducated, they are gullible. But this is an ethnocentric and arrogant view to hold. Now friends, does our lack of experience of signs and wonders in the Western world, like for example in in Australia, which is quite cynical, mean that God has ceased to perform signs and wonders in the church? Not at all. That is a, a really, I think, ethnocentric way of interpreting the scriptures that discounts the experience of Christians 
all around the world in all these different countries and continents. Now, is it true that God seems to perform more signs and wonders in the majority world than in the Western world? Yes, it does seem that way. But why is that? Could part of the reason be our lack of faith? That we do not pray with the expectation that God could genuinely interrupt our world supernaturally. That he could intervene. Now, granted, that's not the only reason, but I do think that oftentimes our prayers are too small and lack faith. Now, at the same time, we could be praying full of faith and God does not miraculously intervene either. And that is his choice at the the end of the day. He is the one who is sovereign. He is wise. He is God. And we are not. And we uh, don't know his plans and his purposes. Why he sometimes... Uh, intervenes miraculously and other times he chooses not to. Okay, so we've looked at the wrong attitude towards miracles. Now let's look at the right attitude towards miracles. Look with me now at verses 49 and 50. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, isn't that interesting? Initially, the official, he asked Jesus to come with him to Capernaum to heal his son. But Jesus basically says, I don't need to go to Capernaum to heal him. I can heal him from where I'm standing here right now, just with the word from Cana. And this is what makes this miracle um, unique. Because with the other healing miracles in the Gospels, Jesus is normally present with the person. He often lays hands on them. But here, Jesus heals the boy without ever meeting him even face to face. He heals him while he's still in another town. This is what you would call a long-range healing. Can you imagine if someone comes to Pastor Ferdinand saying, you know, my son is very sick. Um, can you please, Pastor, can you please uh, come with me to um, Geelong, where he is, and can you pray for him to be healed? Uh, instead of getting to his car and driving to Geelong, Ferdinand just says, Go! Your son will live. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? But notice um, with me the, the reaction of the official. It says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Jesus is basically testing his faith. Do you believe I am powerful enough to heal your son without even going to see him? How much do you believe in me? And he does believe in Jesus' word. Even though Jesus had just criticized all Galileans for needing to see signs and wonders before believing, this man, who was either a Gentile or a a Jew who was not a very good Jew, a royal official, he was the one that believed Jesus' word before witnessing the miracle. And this might raise a question in some of our minds. Should we wait for Jesus to perform a sign before we believe. Now, many people you know, who, are, who are skeptical might say, until Jesus performs a miracle, until I see it, I will not believe in him. 
For others might say, if only Jesus was still alive today, then I could go and watch and see, does he actually do these, these miracles? Um, then I would believe. And this is precisely the attitude that Jesus is criticizing. And furthermore, just because you were alive, let's say 2,000 years ago, to witness Jesus' um, miracles, doesn't guarantee, doesn't mean that you would have believed in Jesus as, as the Messiah. We see later, actually, in the book of John, in chapter 12, verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. These people had seen Jesus perform many signs in their presence, and yet they still did not believe. Friends, if you do not want to believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how many miracles you see, you will still resist believing in Jesus. You will still find a way to rationalize it away. But this man, this official, he has the right attitude towards miracles. He believes that there is no miracle beyond Jesus' power. If Jesus says, I am going to do this miracle, he believes it. And his attitude to miracles shows that this man, he actually had a genuine faith after all. In Matthew uh, 16, 4, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given other than the sign of Jonah. Now, I said before, there are many Christians that fit into this category because they demand signs and wonders from God. But instead, what we see in John is that there are two categories for genuine faith. Faith based upon miracles and faith apart from miracles. In John 10, 38, Jesus says, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is saying, even if you're struggling to believe me, at least believe based on the evidence of the miracles that I have performed, the miraculous works I have done. And then you will know that the Father and I are one. That is faith based upon miracles. Now in John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, we have the famous account of Jesus' disciple, Thomas, who says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into uh, into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But then Jesus, of course, appears to Thomas. And, and, and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Now don't you see? Thomas's faith was a faith that was based upon miracles. 
He had to see the evidence of the resurrection before believing. But Jesus says, those who believe without seeing, they are even more blessed. There's a different quality to their faith. Faith apart from miracles. Now, unfortunately, I am not with you in person today, or else I would have asked you the question, how many of you came to believe in Jesus as a result of witnessing a miracle? Now, maybe some of you did, but I think many of us did not. Either way, your faith is genuine. Faith based upon a miracle is genuine, and faith apart from witnessing miracles is also genuine so long as the object of our faith is Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Okay, so we've looked at the uh, wrong attitudes towards miracles. We've looked at the right attitudes towards miracles. And let's finish with the greatest miracle. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, the first half of John's Gospel is often referred to as the Book of Signs by scholars. Because unlike the other Gospels, Jesus refers to, sorry, John rather, refers to Jesus' miracles as signs. Why does he do that? By calling them signs, he's telling us the purpose of these miracles. Jesus performed these miracles as signs so that people might believe in him, that he is the Messiah, that he is the savior of the world. Now notice something else with me in verse 53, look in your Bibles. Once the official had received word of his son's healing, we are told, and he himself believed. Now didn't John already tell us back in verse 50 that this man had believed? What's the difference between verse 50 and verse 53? Now you see in verse 50, the official believed in Jesus' ability to perform healing. But in verse 53, he believes that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Not only him, but as a result of his belief, his entire household comes to believe in Jesus. Now, friends, the greatest miracle in this story is not the long-range healing of the boy. The greatest miracle in this story is that the royal official, the last person in Galilee that anyone expect, that would have expected to believe in the Messiah, him and his entire household believed in Jesus the Messiah. The greatest miracle is always when someone believes in Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle is the miracle of regeneration. That is when someone whose heart is cold towards Jesus, hardened against God, is transformed. The miracle of new life. This was the reason 
that Jesus performed his miracles. So friends, our greatest problem is not illness or death. It is not coronavirus or cancer. Our greatest problem is the sin that is in our hearts, our broken relationship with God and the eternal death that we will face as a result of our sin and our brokenness. And this was true of this official, of his son and of his entire family as well. You see, Jesus was concerned not just for their physical healing, but for their spiritual healing. Jesus was concerned not just for their physical life, but also for their eternal life. And how does Jesus provide this eternal life? By going to the cross. You see, Jesus himself was the true royal son who died so that the royal official son might live. You see, Jesus was the royal son of God, enthroned with his father in the heavens. And yet he took off his royal robes, entered into this broken and sinful world as a peasant baby. He laid aside his majesty and instead he took upon himself the cross in all its humiliation and shame. And so Jesus dies on that cross for that official son, for that official's himself, for, for his entire household. And he died for you and he died for me. And on that cross, Jesus takes upon himself God's judgment so that we might live. And not only that, Jesus rises from the grave, defeating death forever. And then he ascends to the heaven, to the Father, regains the glory of the royal Son of God. And now, anyone and everyone who puts their faith, puts their trust in Jesus, can also overcome death and have eternal life in his name. Do you believe in Jesus today? So do miracles happen today? Let me close today by telling you the story of my friend, Brett. Brett is my friend who uh, studied with me at uh, Ridley Bible College. He's now serving as a pastor in the Church of England in Cumbria, which is actually in the northwest uh, part of England. And I'm going to read for you his own words. He said, I was born again in late August 2012. The day of my conversion involved attending a, a Protestant church for the first time in my life and hearing a sermon about justification by grace through faith. I was raised a Roman Catholic and taught that I had to work to be saved. And once I heard that fateful sermon, I came to faith in Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord and I realized that all I needed was faith in his atoning work to be saved. For five years, I had suffered from crippling mental health issues, which were brought on from a nervous breakdown. The worst of which was severe social anxiety disorder. It left me unable to talk with strangers and racked with fear. Even the thought of leaving my house and interacting with other people caused horrible panic attacks. For many years, I blamed God for this illness. But the evening of my new birth, I knelt down in prayer at the foot of my bed and I verbalized what had occurred in my heart during the morning church service. 
giving my life to Jesus out loud. Towards the end of that prayer, I apologized to God for blaming him for my anxiety disorder and said, Lord, I submit my life to you. Please do a miracle and take my anxiety disorder away. But if you choose to leave it, I will still follow you. Amen. The very next morning, I was totally healed from my anxiety disorder and it has never come back. And that was eight years ago. Friends, do miracles happen today? Yes, they do. But the greatest miracle of all is when dead hearts become alive, when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that shows us the nature of miracles, the purpose of miracles, how we should, um, uh, what, what wrong attitudes towards miracles are, what right attitudes to miracles are, and ultimately the greatest miracle that Jesus Christ, the ultimate royal son, laid aside his majesty, went to the cross, took upon himself your judgment, suffered death and humiliation, so that we might receive eternal life and sonship, adoption into your family as beloved children. So Father, I pray for everyone listening to this sermon now. Father, would you do a work in their hearts? If anyone is listening today that does not have faith in Jesus, Father, would you do this miracle in their hearts even now for your glory and the good of your people. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again very much for the opportunity to share God's word with you. And I do hope that uh, uh, in future, the Lord would give me an opportunity to meet you in person. God bless.